Welcome to episode 231 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. Canada is one of the biggest emitters per capita in the world, led by the oil and gas sector, which makes up about 26% of national emissions. Canada has also had the reputation for a long time of talking a good game, but rarely putting in place the measures needed to finally start lowering greenhouse gas emissions, which in 2021, the last latest reporting year, stand at 670 megatons of CO2 equivalent per year. A new Government of Canada report says that we are now on track to hit the 2021 commitments to lower emissions by 40 to 45% below 2005 levels by 2030. To discuss that report, I'm joined by Rachel Doran, who is the Vice President of Policy and Strategy at Clean Energy Canada. Welcome to the interview, Rachel. Thanks so much for having me, Markham. Well, this is going to be a very interesting discussion, particularly since uh, COP28 just ended a well, I guess it ended yesterday, uh, a little bit of overtime on the part of the negotiators. And and there's already a big spat between Alberta and uh, Environment Minister Stephen Gilbeau uh, over Canada's endorsement of the final agreement and all of that. Well, that's just kind of back a backdrop to this. But I want to start this discussion uh, at a very general level because uh, we're now, the, the, the Liberals were elected uh, in October of, of 2015. So they've now been in over eight eight years. And there's an old saying in Canada, we don't elect governments, we throw out governments. And I think it's, it's fair to say, I don't think anybody would dispute that there's a little bit, bit of fatigue with this government, you know, voter fatigue. And we're seeing it reflected in, in the polls. And the uh, a lot of uh, people that I know who say, well, I wouldn't necessarily support them, but here's some good thing that they've they've done. And but I'm not going to do that. I, I I would have to say that since the Liberals came into power, they have very methodically created a very, very robust suite of energy and climate policies. Uh, sometimes, you know, we we thought maybe they were a little uh, slow to to get this done. But it really is quite impressive. Would, would you agree? I think what we're seeing, um, and you know, I think in the climate movement, sometimes it's hard to um, accept that, uh, congratulate progress, because what we need to accomplish is so large. And, you know, I think that's the frame I would use to look at any action in this space. But certainly, you know, the rhythm and what you've described here around looking at a commitment, building a plan to get there, getting to a more ambitious commitment. And now what we're seeing is, you know, some evidence that the measures that, you know, are being talked about are at least making a dent in what Canada promised to do and a significant one. So I think that's a moment to stop and celebrate. It's not to rest on one's laurels. And I think, you know, we can talk lots more about what there still is to be done. But, but you know, I think that this kind of progress report is something, A, you know, we weren't even seeing a decade ago with the kind of accountability and tracking about, you know, what are the measures doing and where are we going? Um, and actually seeing some evidence of progress is, you know, that's a positive step. I think that Canadians are not sufficiently plugged into what's going on at the global level with the energy transition. 
I when I interview experts from the U.S., Europe, and Asia, there the level of urgency in those regions far exceeds what you get in Canada. We're very complacent here. We're we're in many ways behind what the, those other uh, countries and, and regions are doing, and we don't we haven't quite grasped that the along with the energy transition has come not only the adoption of clean energy, so we're basically electrifying economies and we'll have a, a little bit of low emission fuel like hydrogen or sustainable aviation fuel, but mostly it's electrification. And Canadians just don't get it. They, the fact that this is a, the next industrial revolution. That's what this is. And this is an opportunity, a moment in time when Canada can escape the hewers of wood and drawers of water, our focus on natural resource extraction as a source of our of employment and our national wealth, we can escape that. And by building a clean energy industry and, and, and decarbonizing our, our provincial economies and so on, this is the opportunity to be something better than we were before and to maintain our prosperity and I, you know, you can see where this, this, these policies from the federal government are going. They kind of get it. You know, I still think they're a little wishy-washy on this, but they kind of get it. And, but Canadians by and large don't. And that I think in part explains some of the pushback we've seen against some of these policies, like the consumers part of the uh, carbon tax. Yeah, I think I, you know, sometimes speak at a conference room and we'll drop a quote like, you know, it's over, the future is battery electric vehicles, um, you know, it's as cited by Bloomberg or some of the declines, like what you referenced, you know, since 2010, renewable energy has come down 85% in cost globally, you know, according to work that we've done, it's now cheaper to produce electricity in Alberta and Ontario with renewables rather than natural gas. And I think sometimes people say, oh yeah, no, it's the lady from Clean Energy Canada, you know, take these things with a grain of salt. But I think you're right that there is just this radical change in the global economy underway that's being powered far outside of North America. Even the steps that, you know, everyone talks about the US and the Inflation Reduction Act and the massive transformation that's happening there in their economy to try to seize some of these opportunities is really just trying to catch up with China and where they started, you know, a decade before us. So when we look at, you know, we've seen some great announcements and things like the battery supply chain in Canada. And I would say, you know, there's there's definitely been some work um, from provincial governments and federal governments to try to land some of those big, exciting opportunities. But, you know, I think what you're saying is so right that, you know, that is really just a catch up, you know, that that we still see, you know, 75% of the global battery supply chain sitting in China. So, you know, there are definitely um, parts of the business community in Canada that I really think are seeing this opportunity and these moments of change, of course, there's going to be winners and losers, but such, you know, a radical opportunity to try to be at the forefront to develop some of the research and development that's going to be required to, you know, meet the innovative spaces of the future maybe not entirely to even move away from our natural resource economy, but like how do we use it in a way that's even more value add um, and will benefit Canada in a different way than maybe we've been able to in the past. So 
are we exporting wood or are we exporting sustainable aviation fuel? Are we, you know, digging for coal as we did in the past or like the really key critical minerals that are going to be required for some of the new emerging clean economy? So, you know, I think there are people that get it uh, for sure and see this as we're no longer talking about sort of climate as maybe a political issue where you sit somewhere along a spectrum and how you feel about it. But like, this is just the way the economy is going and how we respond today will, you know, really indicate our future affluence or lack thereof. I agree 100%. And and uh, I spent last weekend reading uh, IEA reports, uh, principally two of them, technology perspectives, and then the there was a, uh, an update uh, uh, later in the spring to that report. And the one of the, the things that stuck out for me was the IEA estimates that China controls about 80% of the clean energy industry in the world. So now we know that the, the, the various pieces of legislation that the Americans have introduced, the Inflation Reduction Act, the Infrastructure Act, the CHIPS Act, will put about a trillion dollars of government subsidies uh, into the into this industry, and then who knows how much private capital it'll, it'll leverage. Then the, the the Europeans, in response to the Americans, committed four hundred billion to update their their clean uh, their green industrial plan. So now let's just assume for a second that between those two regions, there's one point four trillion dollars, one point four trillion dollars to build EV plants and battery plants and all of that stuff. The IEA says. Even with all that expenditures, all they will do is keep up with Chinese expansion for the next decade. So that in 2033 or 2034, when we look look back, China will still have 80%, despite all that we've done and all the money, capital we've invested in building these, these factories and so on. We will still only not be, we won't even have made a dent in China's dominance in this area. And boy, if that isn't a wake-up call and and, a, and a, an illustration of why we need to be more urgent in North America, but particularly in Canada, I don't know what it is. Absolutely, and I but I do think there are interesting things happening, and I you know they're happening in real time. So it'll be interesting to have this conversation again in two years. But all the geopolitics that are laying over the energy transition, uh, you know, I think what we're seeing in terms of friendshoring supply chains, trying to really build into, you know, the what was previously seen as public policy is now more industrial policy. So, you know, industry happening in conversations real time with government, governments trying to develop incentives that keep supply chains in various jurisdictions. You know, I think we've seen interesting moves from China to try to, you know, locate some of its supply in uh, Mexico as a response to the IRA. So like things are just changing so fast and even, you know, the business models and, you know, we've watched this in the auto sector where, you know, you used to develop a car, you'd have a lot of suppliers who'd feed into your supply chain and maybe the advantages of trying now to secure some of that upstream critical mineral supply, just so you know, you're going to have access to it, you know, you know, where it's going to be sourced from. So you're able to access those, you know, uh, tax credits and benefits. I think there's just, you know, to your earlier point, these, this chess game happening right now where people are really trying to respond in real time to the actions of other countries and, 
and, you know, meet the urgency of the moment to try to, you know, again, take advantage of some of the massive shift in where we're going to be seeing our economy powered from. And I think maybe for, you know, folks who don't spend their days immersed in this all the time, it's like, you know, we really are seeing evidence that the economy that used to be very fossil fuel powered economy is shifting to a mineral powered economy. And that's just going to totally upend where we see sort of traditional resource wealth and how we conceive of it. That That's exactly right. I mean, in Canada, the biggest export sector is uh, oil and gas by far. It's about $120 billion a year. And the next biggest is autos at about $64 billion a year. So, you know, if uh, that oil and gas exports alone were taken out of the economy, it would have a huge effect. Never mind, you know, whatever else uh, uh, we might uh, that might be affected by this by this clean energy revolution. But so let's that's all background uh, for our discussion of policy, which is what we're really here uh, to, to to discuss. Um, the I, I read the report, or at least I read the press release. I'm going to confess I didn't actually read the report, didn't have time. Uh, but the press release says the government of Canada has been implementing more than 140 climate measures. And we've got, um, what have we got? Net zero electricity regulations, clean fuel regulations. We've got the uh, uh, oil and gas uh, methane emission regulations uh, that were just announced and are very controversial. Never mind the ever controversial oil and gas emissions cap, which we'll see the regulations uh, finalized next year. And, and then a slew of others and more coming yet for aviation and rail and, and uh, marine shipping and on and on and on. Sometimes I look at that and I think how in the world, I mean, it's almost like too, it's too much. And it's, you know, this rat's nest of, of regulations. Has the government done a good job of thinking this through so that they're not stepping on themselves all the time and actually making things worse for, for businesses and industry? Well, maybe I would stop for a minute and just say a little bit about what I think the report sort of does and what it doesn't do and, you know, what it's relying on to show things sure. and then maybe give Good you a bit idea. of a sense about how I see those things fitting together. Um, so, you know, I think that what we've seen here is a progress report on the emissions reduction plan that the government put in. Um, and now under the legislation passed on accountability, the government was required to provide sort of progress updates at regular intervals so that Canadians know, you know, not just saying, trust us, we're going to get to 2030, we've got all these great policies. The modeling is supposed to show us, you know, like a sense of are we on track, aren't we on track, how much more do we need to do to be on track, and where is the areas of greatest potential to do it. Um, and so what they can model in these things are really... It's I wouldn't call it arbitrary, but, you know, it's like out of all the things you've ever heard of that the federal government is doing, the things that are still early days and they aren't, you know, like well designed enough to be popped into a model and shot out the other side and figured out how many emissions reductions you can expect from them. You can't really include those. The ones where, though, you have gotten partway through a regulatory process, you know how these things are going to be designed. They've kind of thought forward, you know, how many emissions you might get from that particular design those can be included. So, you know, I think that these updates are useful, but they're not actually telling us like something that like you mentioned, like the clean electricity regulations is by no means final, is definitely under debate by, you know, specific provinces in this country and probably, you know, lots of 
businesses and Canadians that have questions about them. So, you know, I guess I would say, number one, this is not just a like a you described as a patchwork of a million measures in a million spaces. It's also we're really at different points in implementation and all of these different policies. And no one should take for granted even some of the ones, you know, that have been implemented for years now, like carbon pricing, you know, sometimes come up as the subject of popular debate again. So again, I'd call these touch points very useful just as a method of accountability and kind of a, a gauge of are we on track or not, but definitely not to substitute for really like, how do we get some of these things to the end of the line and really get them in law or in regulation or the dollars into pockets of businesses who are actually building the heat pumps and things we need to get further along the energy transition. Um, so I guess that's just maybe overview of what this is and isn't. That said, so in terms of all these measures, you know, I think different countries have taken different approaches and Canada, I think, started back in 2015 under this government, you know, carbon pricing was definitely a cornerstone of our approach, then added to some of the like regulatory policies you've described. And I think of those as more of the, the kind of sticks a bit, you know, like government gets to say, how much are you going to be able to emit if you are, you know, an oil and gas producer who's, you know, releasing methane into the atmosphere, what measures do you have to take and how much can you do? And like, that's a traditional government role, but so is providing some carrots. So what are all these tax credits? And, you know, I think a lot of ink has been spilled in Canada over the U.S. taking a bit of a more carrot facing approach and, you know, relying a lot on some of these tax credits and supporting businesses and industry to kind of get where they're going. So I do think that Canada has kind of taken a look at the different sectors and tried to consider what is a combination of carrot and stick that's going to work to try to move the needle in this sector. Is it perfect and is there overlap? You know, I, I think because we started with carbon pricing, that's, you know, like a bit at a core and definitely does overlap in some ways with other policies and approaches. But each of them, I think, are trying to get at something slightly different. Um, and, you know, when you start seeing the climate plan as a whole, you know, you can definitely look in this report and see them saying, you know, the, the sectors where we really need to do more are, for example, the oil and gas sector or the building sector. Like, what are the different levers we could pull to try to get traction there? So, you know, I guess, is there too much? I mean, yeah, government regulation is complicated and overwhelming. And you look at this giant report of all these measures, for sure, it's a hard for Canadians to wrap their mind around it. But, you know, I think it would be helpful to look at the policies individually and see what they're trying to accomplish. The, uh, the reason I asked that question is because I want to uh, use, I want to bring up a, a, an example that the uh, oil and gas sector has been complaining about. So uh, Alberta has had... Uh, an industrial emitters tax since 2007. And it, they recently renegotiated their equivalency agreement with the federal government. And so they've made it stricter. But I would argue that they it really hasn't been uh, high enough to, to induce a significant, even minor uh, or, uh, reductions in the emissions. But one the industry says, look, you've already got us, we were paying a carbon tax per barrel uh, then you come along and you 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 want to have a cap on emissions. So then you layer on a, a cap and trade system on top of that. Uh, so now we have emissions trading. We don't know, you know, it's not clear about the 
the the credits that are created under tier, which is the Alberta uh, carbon tax system for for industry, and then the emissions credits that are going to be created under cap and trade. And how's that all going to work? And then on top of that, there are other regulations like clean fuel regulations that then have a, a an impact on this. And I don't know, but they might have a point. As a former regulatory lawyer, I would say that sounds like a lot of uh, good work for regulatory lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so, lawyer, lawyers have to eat too. Right? <laughs> don't judge me. But, uh, you know, I, I think maybe I would start with what you said, which is, you know, if we wanted to have one policy and we all agreed that you could set a carbon price with like serious teeth, so we're not talking $170 a ton in 2030. We're talking it like soon. And everyone was on board with that. You know, economists would say that's the most economically efficient way to go right. about doing things. That said, so if you're looking at, you know, um, the example you've used in the oil and gas sector, you know, I think methane has a particularly large punch in like early years. So people probably know it's just got a lot more um, impact in terms of its, you know, climate change potential than carbon dioxide in the short term. So if you are an oil and gas producer, you know, and the current carbon price is not incentivizing you to sort of change your practices to really reduce that super punchy methane, do you need another layer of government regulation that basically just says you don't get to you know, negotiate this with offsets? You really need to just cap anything happening in your production that's going to like reduce that methane. So I think um, you know, maybe in an ideal world, A, where we didn't have complex patchworks of federal and provincial jurisdiction governing these things and political parties with different ambitions and aspirations. Um, you know, there probably could be a simpler system that would be easier to navigate for industry. That said, I think what we're seeing is kind of a product of this dialogue around, well, what things are working? What are the problems we have to get at? You know, we the clock is ticking is certainly the one lesson from any of these reports, COP and others. Like, we don't have time to, you know, for looking at changes for 2030. We're about to hit 2024. Like, six years is so short in terms of investment cycles, political cycles, any cycles. Um, you know, do we need to kind of throw everything at the wall here to try to address the individual problems we see to try to get the emissions we know we need to reduce? Uh, again, one of the reasons I brought that up is because when the uh, cap and trade uh, program was announced uh, last week, uh, I got some really serious blowback from some oil and gas executives. They were really angry uh, at uh, the Trudeau government. Uh, but that being said, I, I made the point that, that you know, like Chris, Dr. Chris Bataille, who's an economic modeler and you know him well, and he said, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, Sweden has mostly is just carbon tax, but it's been well over $100 a ton for a long time. So, you know, if you want to pay that kind of a carbon tax, you know, for sure, which, of course, the oil and gas executives don't want to pay. And they've got a very sweet deal in Alberta right now with the industrial emitters tax. They pay 20. They pay the full freight on the 20% uh, of their emissions and nothing on the on the rest. I mean, you know, it's great for them and they haven't reduced their emissions very much but there's a big debate within the academic community and amongst economists you know people like mark jackard 
another uh, economic model very, very well known in Canada. And he says, no, it's a combination of carbon prices and regulations and subsidies, all of those together, they have to work together to, to create effective climate policy. And, and, and so uh, I think that's kind of where I was going. But the next question I have for you is how are we going to figure out I mean, the the provincial governments are a big problem because they have the they have to implement a lot of these these policies that the, you know, the federal government comes up with and not all of them are on board and in fact some of the most important ones are not on board alberta is not on board Toronto, uh, ontario is dragging its feet really only bc and and on and quebec are, are embraced this so what do we make of this, you know, smorgasbord of patchwork of of provinces that are on board, have a climate plan, and and are busy implementing? I mean, I think every government is elected by its citizens. So you know, I think when you poll individual people and households in any province in this country, like they all say. I see our neighbors to the south doing more to secure clean economy investments, and I want us to do more. And, you know, I'm worried about the future of my kids, and I think we should be undertaking some action to address potential climate indications. Of course, there's going to be varying views on where that ranks in terms of affordability or where they sit on the political spectrum. But, I mean, the number one thing that I think is just really helping people articulate to the leaders that they represent, like this is a non-negotiable, non-partisan issue, we need you to act. And I think, you know, the focus has been more on the federal government. Um, and that's understandable because we have a complex jurisdictional system where like the federal government commits to these targets because it's in charge of our international negotiations and discussions. But the provinces have all these really important levers like electricity grids and the feds aren't you know, even allowed to kind of act in some of those spaces. So, you know, having the people who care hold provincial governments accountable, I think is important. Um, I would maybe though, go back to some of the examples you were using. And I would say for sure, there's definitely like been some strong leadership and regulatory policy coming out of BC and Quebec for a long time. But, you know, I'd like to think, um, a province like Ontario, where there's been, you know, like a real, I would say, change in the approach as we've seen the world economy shift to like very positive around the manufacturing electric vehicles, like a real fundamental understanding about the competitive advantage of clean energy and even some recent announcements on procurements of new rene renewables coming out the end of this decade. So, you know, I think to me, that's a really positive step too, that, that again, as I said before, this doesn't need to sit on a political spectrum. And as you've said, there's a package of different policies that you can use to achieve these objectives and governments that are incentivized as political parties to kind of find their own path, their own narrative and their own approach, that there is one that will appeal to every, you know, stripe and that what, you know, maybe uh, we can do is try to, you know, help increase the robustness and just like round out the approach of these different governments who want to do things differently. They want to use nuclear energy or they want to use renewables or they want to use regulation and they want to use investments. How do we help them get to the same ends? Maybe by using the tools that make the most sense for them and just upping everyone's ambition because yeah, the province's commitments right now add up to less than half of what Canada said it'll do in the national space. 
So we certainly need a bit more um, efforts to try to help contribute to the kind of collective objective, if that's where we're all trying to head. Um, I'm just going to provide a little background, particularly for our uh, American and European listeners. And Alberta plays an outsized, uh, outsized uh, role in this conversation because uh, the Alberta is the eighth largest oil producer in the world all by itself. Never mind the rest of Canada, which then makes it four percent. So it's eight percent, and the other and the oil product, only gas production in the other provinces, are mostly controlled by companies headquartered in Alberta. So it plays a huge role in in this conversation, and I have to say, uh, as I've written in some recent columns, it's very clear that there is a between the OPEC countries and some of the others who are allied with them. They believe in the slow transition narrative. They think that, you know, we're OPEC's World Oil Report says that we'll be using 116 million barrels a day of oil by 2045. And the IEA says peak oil demand 2030 or sooner. So that's the slow versus fast. I, I think the evidence supports the fast transition. But what's important here is that the Alberta government and the oil and gas industry have absolutely, firmly, unequivocally adopted the slow transition. And that leads to their political opposition to a lot of these federal policies, you know, where they vow to fight them tooth and nail, you know, you know, uh, Danielle, Alberta Premier Danielle Smith says, you'll you'll take the oil oil barrel out of my cold dead hands you know that that sort of thing it's just it's ridiculous but that is a big impediment and so i'll i'll just leave that in our that as a wrap up to our discussion around the provinces but i i'm i'm curious what you think about the role of municipalities in all of this because we very rarely talk about them i mean i think um municipalities are on the front end of so many climate impacts. I think that's part of the reason that we see some exciting leadership and enthusiasm coming from local governments. Like if you're actually having to deal with the real on the ground impacts of, you know, a floodplain map that's going to, you know, eliminate part of your community having safe insured properties to live in, like you're there, you're dealing with it. If you're, you know, watching bridges be washed out in major storms, like that goes on your budget books. So, you know, I think it's really exciting to see some of the leadership that um, municipalities have shown across the country. And, you know, I think in the US, um, kind of in the years when there was, you know, a Trump government, there was a lot of like, we are still in enthusiasm from a lot of different municipalities and individual states who were kind of saying, no, 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 we are going to keep on track with what we promised to do in international commitments. And we're going to show you how it can happen. We're going to, you know, use our procurement powers to try to buy clean and, you know, improve the embodied carbon in our own buildings. And I think some of that leadership can then trickle up. So I think some of the practices we've seen, for example, in Vancouver and Toronto on just that topic, like how do you kind of make some progress in your own building space, are practices then that you know you've tried, you've piloted, they could start think be thought about as you know implementable in our national building code. So, you know, I think 
sometimes municipalities don't have a lot of capacity. And I, you know, I think we as an organization are thinking about how do we even help equip municipalities even better to be the leaders that they want to be on these issues. Um, but sometimes that, that, you know, their leadership can really provide that example and catalyst, I think, for movement elsewhere. Yeah, there's a lot that municipalities can do. I mean, one area is in transportation, because uh, very often municipalities or a group of uh, municipalities in a region uh, are responsible for transport, for public transport. And, and the uh, there's a big movement in Canada now to replace diesel buses with electric buses. And that's got all sorts of implications, because if you live in Vancouver, you live in southern Ontario, you probably live in southern Quebec, that works. But, you know, uh, as I, I interviewed um, uh, Eddie Robards, who's the who charge of the uh, uh, buses for the city of Edmonton, and they have 60 electric buses that aren't very effective in the winter. And I think maybe they performed more poorly than than they, you know, Edmonton was anticipating. And so now they're they're piloting a couple of hydrogen buses because they they hope that, that they'll work better uh, in the, you know, when it's 30 below. Uh, but the those uh, uh, those municipalities that are at the forefront of this, uh, and they're all across the country, um, are, are getting support from the federal government. And I think, if I remember correctly, there was $15 billion set aside to electrify or switch uh, uh, buses and other forms of public transportation over to zero emission vehicles. Uh, so I think that's it doesn't get reported much. We did a, a few reported on a few, you know, when it came out a few years ago. But I, I think that's a that's a, a big deal and, and will pay off uh, in the not too distant future. Yeah, I think there's you know, the permanent transit fund coming from the feds to municipalities. I think there's been um, through the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, they had sort of a green municipal fund, to, you know, really be able to provide um, some resources behind communities that wanted to undertake innovative um, mitigation practices. And yeah, I definitely agree. And I think it happens all the time across this giant country where like the needs of different places are just different. So how do you empower the leadership of the people that live there? Um, and I think the federal government has definitely done that. There's always these complexities, maybe for your international listeners around, does the money flow directly to municipalities? Does it go via provinces? Do provinces want to, for political reasons, kind of accept the money or pass it on? You know, for a giant city like Toronto, are they trying to get more because they're like servicing so many people and have such a big thing to deal with? But um, yeah, I definitely think uh, one of the things that was identified in this emissions reduction plan update was, you know, federal levers will go so far, but definitely an effort to kind of say, you know, in order for us to get to our targets, there's certainly a role not only for provinces, but for local governments, municipalities, and for the private sector as well. Um, and maybe for listeners who aren't in Canada, you know, I think another maybe um, uh, space is really trying to like lift up and empower the Indigenous leadership that has been really, you know, in Canada, making huge strides in the renewable energy space and are the largest asset owners of, you know, renewable and clean energy projects after provinces and utilities. Um, so yeah, just trying to find other partners across the country where that can be sort of helping advance with their own tools and powers, you know, where our kind of common objective is heading. And maybe just to speak briefly to your, your, your suggestion around 
who's looking at what projections about where we're going. Um, one chart I saw in the IEA report released uh, earlier this fall is one where they're looking at, you know, what natural gas projections look like over the years. And every year you see from like 2018, I was like, oh, it's down a little and 2019 down a little, 2020 it's down a little, you know, and so I think we've consistently underestimated the performance of new technologies and how fast some of this uptake is happening. And it's easy to overestimate in the way we model things, status quo industries and sort of what the power to continue will be. Um, so I, you know, I guess I would just say for sure, there's a variety of, no one can predict the future. There's going to be a variety of views about what's going to happen and how we're going to get there. Uh, but I think just some of those trends are really interesting to watch. Yeah. My, this, this is a very, this is the disruptive part of the S-curve that we're on. The, we've passed the inflection point for a lot of these technologies. And modeling disruption is a very, very difficult task. Impossible, really. But nevertheless, the, the arc of the big trends is clear. I, I think, and 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 so the, that's useful for policymakers. But I want to talk about uh, two other groups that are mentioned in the uh, in the report, and that's businesses and individuals. And one of the things that fascinated me was uh, I read a report from the Alberta Energy, uh, sorry, the Alberta Electricity System Operator uh, a couple of years ago, where they surveyed you know utilities and consumers and and so on. And in Alberta, I think this is like 84% of the electricity goes to industry because of the oil and gas industry. And they were petrified that the big operators are going to self-generate using either wind or solar. And then they're gonna, then they'll either disconnect up from the grid or they'll reduce their consumption from the grid significantly. That would then raise the cost for all the folks who remain on the grid. And that's a very interesting, and we see that down in the U.S. where, you know, the self-generation, the flattening of the utility model, the implement, implement, implementation of smart grid technologies and so on. We're, we're way behind in Canada, but you can see it coming. And I wonder, what's your take on businesses uh, adopting these technologies as they become available and innovating in their, you know, if they're big enough themselves, innovating uh, you know, new clean energy technologies? Well, I think, you know, the private sector has such a potential to come out as leaders. And, you know, I talk to industry leaders every day who, you know, their company has really ambitious net zero objectives. And if plugging into a certain electricity grid with its current intensity isn't going to yield what they said they wanted by 2035, they may be forced to start popping up some windmills and putting out some solar panels. And, but I mean, the ones that I talked to would kind of say like their core business is maybe not energy production. And so they'll do it if they have to, to meet their own objectives, but an even better outcome would be to have kind of abundant, clean, you know, affordable electricity, and they could just plug into the grid for the needs that they have. So, you know, whether that's going to be a possibility, I think, is the product of lots of different actors and it becomes extremely complicated. So when I go, you know, again, to industry leaders and say, one of the solutions I see for you is, you know, to really support these very individual level solutions. So just for examples, like Vermont has just popped in instead of a whole bunch of transmission lines, they popped a bunch of batteries into the basement of all these households to help create grid resilience and provide electricity to people. Um, the UK has a really um, 
a lot more rooftop solar because they've provided like by regulation a way for rooftop solar to actually generate income for people if they're producing more than they're using. So these little like what they're called distributed energy resources actually can provide new sources of energy. They can balance out the load at these peak times. So, you know, maybe the solutions for industry might also be just that individuals are taking different choices. So back to your question of like, will they be producing their energy? I think they will be. And I think that um, places like Alberta, one of the reasons that they were being so successful in producing the most renewable energy in Canada was that they had a whole bunch of companies purchasing renewable energy through power purchase agreements. Um, and Ontario is consulting right now to develop a similar regime. So, you know, I think where there's people who want to buy something, there's going to be a market out there to produce it for sure. And that brings me up that the, the, a lot of the uh, power purchase agreements with wind and solar producers in Alberta, because Alberta has the only real whole, wholesale market in Canada, uh, unlike the U.S. where it's, it's common. Uh, but there was like Google and Amazon and Microsoft. It was all these big companies that wanted to green their data centers and green their operations. And one of the thing, what we don't, think about, you know, why are they doing that? Well, because customers are now looking at the emissions intensity of their supply chains. And you see in the Europe has just, uh, you know, uh, adopted the carbon border adjustment mechanism. There's talk, uh, there's a bill already. Uh, anybody who wants to get the details on it, I, I did an interview uh, two weeks ago, I think, uh, on this, but there there's a bill before Congress uh, about taxing uh, carbon pollution. So that seems to be the wave of the future. And these companies that are in this space can see that. And and I'm sure their customers are already saying, well, okay, Google, okay, you know, Amazon, <clears throat> what's the emissions intensity of your supply chain, of, of your delivery vans and your all of this kind of stuff? And so they're they're working towards that. And and I think that that uh, uh, because you're talking to industry leaders. Do Canadian businesses get that in the same way that the Europeans and the Americans get it? You know, I think um, it certainly depends on probably which company, where are they headquartered, what's their line of business, um, you know, maybe how much it's factoring into individual business cases today. And the people I talk to, certainly the larger companies, I think are seeing you know, the patterns of lending, large financial institutions have net zero commitments, like where are they going to be wanting to put their future investments? Um, governments who, you know, are going to be procuring services are going to be looking at what the emissions profile of the services they're procuring are. So I think big companies are kind of seeing like there's going to be reasons to head down this path. And then there's a trickle down effect to their supply chains. So the small and medium sized business who's been providing you know, services, parts, whatever, to the larger companies are like, oh, I also have to get on board. So I think there's an exciting trickle-down effect happening. I would say in Canada, you know, perhaps it's not as pervasive as some other jurisdictions like the UK or the EU, rather, where there's already an active conversation around carbon border adjustments and maybe some like, um, like clear uh, direction that, you know, People who are purchasing the supplies from these companies want them to be clean and green. Uh, but I think it's happening here. And I think it's going to have a major ripple effect on kind of where we see various aspects of the energy transition going. 
Well, let's end our conversation with a discussion of individuals because consumers play a big role in this. And, and I would have to say uh, I'm seeing, and of course, you know, I'm biased because a lot of my readers will be sort of on the clean energy, you know, side of things. But I'm seeing a lot of enthusiasm around electric vehicles, uh, <clears throat> uh, some solar deployment, uh, you know, depending on where they, the folks are, are located, uh, heat pumps, huge conversation amongst consumers. And, you know, as, as regular listeners will know, uh, we installed uh, a heat pump uh, 18 months ago and love it. Just absolutely. I mean, it, just as an aside, listeners, uh, you know, I don't live in a, a really cold environment, but our ele electricity bill for two months was like $185. You know, I mean, it's, and this is, we're getting into the winter months. I mean, it's peanuts compared to what we used to pay uh, when we had natural gas. Anyway, I digress. Um, so what do you think about this shift amongst Canadian consumers towards clean energy tech? I think like we started talking at the beginning of our conversation, you know, if you asked 10 years ago, maybe people would be taking some of these choices because they really felt compelled to and they were willing to make a sacrifice. And the exciting thing that happens with the changes in technology is, you know, people who like myself convert into an electric vehicle become these evangelists or yourself for a heat pump of how great these things are because like my electric vehicle actually goes you know I can plug it in overnight for three bucks and I can shoot off the line it's peppy it's fun to drive it costs me next to nothing there's no maintenance costs and so I think Part of what you described as that S-curve is like enough people getting this, really liking the technology, seeing it's genuinely better, and then talking to their neighbors and friends where you actually have those trusted relationships and, you know, maybe not hearing it from, you know, somebody might like myself. Um, so, I, you know, I think that there's, you know, for the first time this fall, I'm hearing dinner table conversations about heat pumps, these different technologies really catching on to this point. Um, where people are like, oh, you know, I'm, I might want into this. Uh, and I think it's exciting because, yeah, it's not based on compromise. It's based on you get to do the right thing for the climate and save money at the same time. So I think there's huge opportunity there. And I'm excited to see some of these emerging technologies like vehicle to grid or solar panels that maybe haven't taken off yet. And just what people want to do with those and how they want to be involved in the energy transition. And and to bring it back to the federal report that we were that we've been talking about, a lot of uh, the federal government has made a commitment, uh, like a, around uh, home home uh, heating and you know home technologies, uh, <clears throat> where a lot of these technologies, uh, the electric stuff is higher capital cost, higher purchase price, much lower operating cost, and that's tough for for a lot of consumers to. To overcome, and so they've made uh, low interest loans. They've made there's a five thousand dollar grant through the federal greener home program, uh, on and on, and and that's federal money. And sometimes, in the case of BC, uh, it's it's not matched by provincial governments, but there'll be some in addition to. So you get federal and provincial. You might even get a, a utility uh, subsidy as well. Uh, but there are a lot of, a lot that don't like Alberta and Saskatchewan don't, uh, I don't know about Manitoba, um, and don't know about Ontario, but th that seems like a good place for the government, the federal government to play. They bring the big red checkbook, right? And that's usually where they're most effective at doing anything is when they, when they open the checkbook, uh, 
but but it's not as as effective as it could be because some of the provinces aren't taking it up. Uh, what do you foresee in the future on that front? I mean, I think we've seen the current housing minister start to talk a little bit about if you want the federal dollars, here's some things, provinces. Um, and, you know, I think that there is potential out there for more dollar matching, creating programs where if like the province comes to the table with X, the federal government should contribute the you know majority of the money. Um, so, I mean, I think the checkbook is important. I think continuing to think about how do we streamline these things? Like nobody wants to have to apply to like two different programs with two different forms and wait for the auditor to come through. So really sitting down with like a user experience of some of these programs and how do you make them so simple? The electric vehicle one we've used as an example, it's just like the person doesn't have to deal with it at all. They show up at the, the car dealership, you get that written off of your you know, price of your vehicle and the auto like dealership does all the paperwork with you and seeks your refund on your behalf. So how do you think about programs in that way that are going to mean people who are genuinely busy and will not have an expertise necessarily in navigating some of this, get some of that burden taken off? But I do think to your question, you know, there's a lot of space there for provinces to be stepping up, and some of them are doing a great job. Like in the Maritimes, there's provinces helping contribute for a completely free heat, completely free heat pump for income eligible households. Um, so not to say there isn't leadership out there, but for even more thought around how do you kind of leverage some of those dollars, maybe make them just enough to kind of incentivize people, uh, because as you say, and as a recent report, we've done shows. Over time, you're actually going to save a lot of money. And by implementing more clean solutions, you can save money kind of, you know, in any region of the country, um, particularly considering the kinds of generous rebates that are available. Well, thank you very much, Rachel. I think this has been a pretty thorough uh, discussion of the, the federal report and where we're going with, uh, with various climate policies. And uh, listeners, if you're in interested in digging a little bit more, I uh, recommend that you go to the Clean Energy Canada website. You can Google it uh, and you'll find it with uh, fairly easily. And uh, Clean Energy Canada does a terrific amount of really good uh, research. Solid, solid stuff. Their, uh, their analysts like Rachel are top-notch. And uh, I interview a, a fair amount number of her colleagues and, uh, and rely on on, on their uh, on their research extensively. It's, it's one of the best in, in Canada. So Rachel, uh, thank you very much for doing this.